Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah, they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh, I'm to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. You don't know what you're talking about. What did you know? I managed to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, and I'll say it to you now. I'm down to Anfield, and we'll see them, won't we? What you doing down here, you Johnny man? Thanks very much for taking the time to have a listen to the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast. Three years ago, almost to the day, Robbie Keane was faced with a pretty important decision. Do I spend the rest of my career trying to eke out enough goals for some relegation-threatened clubs to stay in the Premier League? Or do I take myself to L.A.? win some titles and have a little bit of fun. He chose LA again and took some stick at the time. It was widely believed that this is proof that our greatest ever goal scorer had given up the game at a serious level. But in those three years, he's moved into the 60s in international goals. 62, Owen. He has won titles in LA. Two titles. And boy, has he been having fun. The days of unidentified fan are finished for good. If you need a proof of that, you obviously haven't come across this footage that emerged over the weekend. Robbie, Robbie Keno, there again, taking part in the Ice Bucket Challenge. Yeah, I mean, he's, um, it's a kind of a summer holiday setting. (laughs) Yes, on the the Ice Bucket Challenge, as you'll be aware, (laughs) if you're on Facebook, which I think you are, is a uh, kind of viral thing whereby um, people either, uh, people either have the uh, choice of donating $100 to uh, research of motor neuron disease, ALS, or uh, having a bucket of ice water poured over their head. Uh, I suppose you can probably do both as well. He's in party. We hear a lot of the supporting cast there. They're all similar to Robbie. They're all decked out in their well, beachwear. They sound like Irish people, though, don't they? Just from the accent. Oh, I presume Robbie Keane has an entourage, yeah, sure. Uh, an entourage in L.A.? I don't know if he's in <laughs> L.A. At that, when that is recording for that. Sounds like a sounds like he's holidaying with some Irish people. Mm. Uh, but yeah, he's... Um, so he took Mike McGee's challenge and he... And passed it on to Mickey Rourke and Steve Nash. <laughs> he ain't big. Mickey Rourke. Mm. This is Robbie Keane's social circle now. Yeah. Life has got more interesting uh, since he left um, whatever his it, last club was in English football. Tottenham? 
actually was Tottenham. He went from Tottenham to... It's got to be every footballer's dream now. Just to, just to get to the point where you're famous enough that you can go and play in America. I mean, that's what you that's really, really Well, want. look at Bradley Wright Phillips, you know. Yeah. Scoring against Bayern Munich there the other week. Designated player status. Looking forward to our chat today, Ken, with a man who has managed Ajax. He's coached some of the world's best players at Barcelona and Chelsea, Henk Tenkate. Yeah. Um, when I say some of the world's best players, I'm talking Leo Messi at Barcelona. This is the early Messi days at Barcelona. Ronaldinho when he was Ronaldinho. the best player in the world. Uh, Frank Lampard, of course, at uh, Chelsea Football Club. Um, he was part of the duo with Avram Grant that was hired to replace Mourinho uh, and imposed discipline on Chelsea's fractious dressing room. Uh, they got to the Champions League final, and then a few days later, both Grant and Hankton Carter were sacked. But that's Chelsea. Time for Ken Early's Sport on Sport. So, the season got underway on with the Community Shield, which um, Arsenal won very impressively. Now, afterwards, um, <laughs> Arsene Wenger was the only uh, Arsenal man at Wembley Stadium who wasn't predicting a league title victory for 2015 I mean he, he wasn't ruling it out he was just saying that uh, you know there's a lot of good teams in this league um, he said something he said uh, when you uh, the community shield when you lose people say you have lost a trophy when you win they say it's only a friendly which is actually almost the opposite of what actually happens whereby um, uh, when you lose you as Manuel Pellegrini did say well we're, we're, act- we're actually in pre-season this is a pre-season match uh, I left out most of my team. You know, the season starts next week. Um, uh, and in the case of Arsene Wenger, you know, he was kind of saying confidence breeds confidence. The players look pretty confident, afterwards at least. Well, I think really the performance was actually excellent. Um, I mean, you've got Aaron Ramsey, who looks in... I mean, Ramsey, maybe... You know, I mean, uh, okay, say Luis Suarez, one of the remarkable things about him was his resistance to injury. Right up until the end of last season, actually, when he, he finally got, a, I think, pretty much the first injury of his time uh, at Liverpool. And I wondered if maybe his bands had something to do with that. The fact that, unlike most players, Luis Suarez had quite frequent uh, substantial breaks from the game. Yeah. Uh, you know, without actually being injured and having to go through this process of rehabilitation, where he was maybe able to maintain a kind of a level of freshness above what certain other players who have to play all the time and don't get suspended for seven, eight, nine games ever um, are able to do. And maybe um, playing for Wales is a is a big bonus in some ways for a player like Aaron Ramsey or even Gareth Bale. I mean, we saw, you know, one of the sensations of last week was this photo of Gareth Bale in training where he's just completely, he's like Xerxes or something. He's completely covered in these uh, suntan muscles. And there was, you know, photos of him next to his scrawny former self. You know, thinking 12 months ago. Remarkable transformation. Gareth Bale seems to have happened. Um, but, you know, Bale and Ramsey, both these guys have had the summer off. I mean, the... the World Cup winning German players weren't involved in the game for Arsenal um, and he says he's only going to kind of phase them in quite gradually over the over the coming month um, Ramsey's probably not going to have that well maybe you know maybe they will get to Euro 2012 you know or 2016 I should say um, with the additional teams qualifying the fact that they've got fantastic players like Bale and Ramsey maybe the time is going to come for Wales and um, even if the rest of the team isn't that good but you know Ramsey was just magnificent. I mean, he's like, he reminds me of a young Frank Lampard with pace. You know, Lampard maybe was a, a relentless mover, 
but he didn't have the kind of actual sprint speed that Ramsey has. Um, scored a great goal yesterday, which wasn't just about his ability to get up, join an attack, get in the box, but also his incredible composure and timing um, under pressure to... He knew exactly what he had to do when he got the ball. Two touches, bang. And, um, you know, I don't see a lot of teams that are going to be able to stop that. Mm. When you've got also, when you've got to also watch Alexis Sanchez, who I think is a different player from... Um, I mean, Sanchez is a ridiculously small player, but he's also like a keg. You know, he has the, he has the shape of a keg. He's like a re- incredibly powerful player, um, which I don't really see. You know, Walcott has got speed, you know, Ozil, you know, is, is, is quick enough, I suppose, kind of glides around. But Sanchez has got real power. Yeah, he's a pretty impressive guy. He didn't exactly shoot the lights out at Barcelona, but he wasn't bad either. Fairness, he was excellent. Times, he yeah. was really excellent. I mean, Messi didn't like him. <clears throat> you know, he wasn't... So forget about it, you're gone. He wasn't in, in, in Messi's circle of trust. And there was quite a lot of... Uh, you could see it on the field quite frequently. You know, Messi's attitude to him wasn't great. And you heard stuff about what was happening behind the scenes and so on. And look, you know, Barcelona signed Luis Suarez. Well, we've got to make up some money from somewhere and really, you're not going to be in the team anymore. So see you later. But he was excellent for them. Mm. I mean, um, you know, he nearly... He, I suppose... It was his shot, uh, nearly won the league for them against Atletico Madrid in the last, uh, his last game for Barcelona. He scored an absolutely unbelievable goal. Uh, and eventually they conceded a header from a set piece, as they frequently do, and they didn't win the league. And he missed his chance to be a hero. But I think, you know, when, when you look at him over, he's, he was better than a goal every three games, even though he wasn't really starting a lot of the time. Um, you know, I think, I think Arsenal is... He's going to be a bigger player at Arsenal than he was at Barcelona, you I think. Yeah, you mentioned Ramsey, and uh, I know you want to talk about Liam Brady. Yeah. Well, Liam Brady did a big interview with uh, at the Irish Examiner um, a couple of days ago, and you know he talked a bit about his leaving of, of Arsenal and how uh, he wasn't really getting the same kind of job satisfaction from a role in youth development that had become a lot more bureaucratized, I suppose you could say. There was a lot of... Um, sitting around and you know, managing a big team of people in an office, as opposed to what it sounded like Brady enjoyed doing, which was actually being out on the sidelines, looking at players, talking to them, talking to their families. Um, he kind of felt himself more to be the, the director of a medium-sized company <laughs> rather than a kind of uh, football man. You know what I mean? Um, talking about this, though, the, the kind of inflation in the youth football game where... Uh, I mean, you hear it, you hear it from. I mean, Paul Scholes, I think, was saying something. Oh, all they want is a bit of money and a nice car. Paul Scholes, his ever-expanding media empire, now includes the Independent uh, newspaper column, where he, he made these remarks. Brady obviously saw a bit of that, but far from um, kind of uh, trying to roll back from this to say, oh, you know, we shouldn't. He, he's actually urging Arsenal to get more involved in that than they have been. I mean, he's pointing to Chelsea, for instance, who are notorious for throwing money at young players. And, you know, you, you've seen that it's only a trickle of talent that's actually making its way through at the end in Chelsea. Um, he's saying, we've got to do that. We've actually got to go and pay huge money to 16-year-olds because if we don't do it, then Chelsea or Manchester City, Manchester City are going to get them, Manchester United are going to get them, and we, uh, we end up having to pay more for them a couple of years down the line. So I thought it was, it was interesting that he would say that. Yeah, and maybe the money that... You have to throw a lot of money somewhere along the line if you're a club. I don't know, Arsenal are now going the other route and starting to buy. Wenger's gone a little bit spending crazy this summer. But if they want to be sustainable, as they always like to boast about being, then maybe 
you know, you have to spend a few million on players here and there at 16 and there's a bit of a risk factor involved. But actually, you might as well get into a bidding war with Chelsea for a 16-year-old rather than for a fully formed 21-year-old, if you take my point. Yeah, when you're you're definitely going to lose. You'll definitely lose the later bidding war. Uh, to Chelsea but he did also have a few things to say about Irish football and again it's it's quite well I say again I mean when I say again it's because Liam Brady's expressed these kinds of opinions a few times before of course there were very few Irish players coming through at Arsenal in the time that Liam Brady was there I think Stokes uh, the last Irish player Arsenal signed was Andy Stokes he mentioned that again uh, there was certainly no element of Liam Brady uh, looking out for his own corner the Irish kids you know um, but he says that's because there are none uh, if the players aren't there, what can you do? I've told John Delaney this years ago, it's scary. There are no, there are simply no Irish players coming through. The last Irish player Arsenal signed was Andy Stokes. I really, really hope I'm wrong, but I don't see anything coming through from Ireland and it scares me. It's already evident in Irish sides and it affects what Martin O'Neill's trying to do and what Trapattoni was trying to do. And then he then he gets onto a, a favoured theme where he says, I was with, when I was with Giovanni, the media was always bleeding about, look at him, look at him, why isn't he playing? But who has come through? Seamus Coleman is one of the very few who's come up to standard. Seamus Coleman is probably the best example of exactly what he's talking about there. Sometimes, it's not a question of always, it's just ignorance coming back. I mean, Trapattoni was the ignorant one. He was the one who was leaving out uh, players who were better than the ones he was using, including Seamus Coleman, who didn't go, can I remind you, didn't go to Euro 2012. Seamus Coleman did not go to Euro 2012. Mm. So it's no wonder a few of the little sheep were ba-ba, bleeding about that. You know what I mean? I don't know how closely Liam Brady watched Euro 2012. Maybe he didn't, maybe he couldn't watch. Maybe he was watching through his fingers, you know? Maybe that's how he managed to miss Ivan Rakitic as, on, on that Croatian team that was tearing Ireland apart. Because another thing that Liam Brady said in this interview was that when he's making this point about how the, the top clubs have become so... Such big operations with so much money behind them and so many people working for them that their knowledge of the the world game is is becoming is attaining almost maximal proportions. And we actually saw today uh, that <laughs> uh, football manager uh, are now working with Prozone. They've they've given Prozone access to their player database. You know what I mean? Because this is the way in which a lot of particularly young men out there obtain their encyclopedic knowledge of the global transfer market is by football manager. You know, when somebody like Maurizio Isla signs on loan for Queen's Park Rangers, they're going, well, you know, I actually had him in football manager and, you know, Isla, he's actually an excellent player. You know, they should, they should go for Ader Alvarez Balanta on the other side, you know? So this is, what pe- this is the kind of thing people are saying. And that's why I, I imagine players who regularly play football manager will look at Liam Brady's comments about Rakitic and think to themselves, what's going on? What was his comment on Rakitic? Um, well, in the Irish Examiner uh, comments, ever since leaving the job, though, the eye never switches off. Watching the first Brazil-Croatia game at the World Cup in the Ortiz studio, Brady's fingers itched to text Wenger. He couldn't wait to get back to the hotel room to get on the internet and check out Ivan Rakitic, Croatia's holding midfielder. Another find. I went straight onto Google, says Brady, and there you are, he's already promised to Barcelona. But I mean, this guy has been a has been a big player in European football since at least Euro two thousand eight, where he was one of the best players in the Croatia team that beat Germany. In that, I mean, he uh, Ivica Olic scored a goal against Germany from a Rakitic shot that hit the post. Um, he played 
against Ireland, as I mentioned, in Euro 2012, where he played all, all Croatia's games there. Is your point um, about Brady? He played the Europa League final yeah. for Sevilla. My point is, I mean, Brady was, was mentioning, um, he's saying, you know, he, he, when he was talking about his role in youth development, um, you know, I, that you, there's often unhelpful hype with young players. Um, Luke Freeman, for instance. You know, Arsenal spent some money on this guy, Luke Freeman, and suddenly the media were saying, oh, this guy's the next big thing, you know, just because Arsenal had taken a gamble on some guy from, from Gilliam. You know, they, they didn't necessarily expect it to work out. They hoped it would, you know. So he's, he's, he's not very... He doesn't have a lot of patience with media stuff, even though, even though he himself has <laughs> worked in the media now for many years, but obviously in a specialised role. Uh, says he, he told Chesney uh, that I, I played with Dino Zoff, with Pat Jennings. None of these guys wanted to read articles about themselves or, you know, mm. read quotes that they'd said in the media. It's, it's actually echoing something Scholes said. Scholes, who is now a burgeoning media personality, said, well, I, I didn't want to give interviews when I was playing because I didn't want to read on Saturday morning. When, when I had a game on Saturday afternoon, I didn't want to read something I'd said during the week on Saturday morning, you know, have that in my head, just kind of mm, distracting me. I didn't want that. This is what Brady says he tells his young players, you know, don't get involved in any of that. But he's got this generally jaundiced attitude towards the media, which he clearly doesn't see himself as being part but of. But just now, back to the Coleman point, are you saying that when Liam Brady says there are no Irish players, you would dispute that? Is that the point that a guy like Coleman actually was there well, and I, 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 Everton I, the, were the ones who found him? Yeah, the Col- well, the Coleman point is... is uh, Coleman's the best fullback of the league. He was on the, the team. So there's no doubt that he yeah. should be good enough to have come through Arsenal if he had been spotted. But yeah, I mean, in fairness to Brady, I don't know if there are, are, are many more at that level, if any. No, but you know, I, I do I do think it's always a bit... James McCarthy, who came through a totally different... Uh, a, a totally different system. Jack Grealish, Aston Villa, who looks like a fantastic player, but again, through a different... Not through the Irish domestic system anyway. Um, but yeah, I mean, he, he says, look, that's media talk. Um, the next big thing, that's media talk. You know, Wilshire, he was signposted by the people that count, not media people. Um, I don't know, but... You know, it's not... I don't think anyone... Uh, sort of group necessarily has a monopoly on on knowledge. I mean, it's all it's it's one thing not to pay any attention to what's in the media, but maybe if you did, you'd have seen something about even Rakitic before 2014. Manchester City, just briefly, have signed Yelakim Mangala. Um, so that brings them up about to their transfer cap on net spending. Now they can maybe sell some guys and, and bring in some guys, uh, but for the moment, it doesn't look like there'll be. There'll be much more happening. That's the end of Kennedy's report on sport. All right, that's, that's good manners. <laughs> a number of players have played, but they're still in the squad. I wonder, did you speak to any of them before deciding to accept the job? No, absolutely not. No, 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 no. I've seen none of their business. You know what I was going to do? It's a ridiculous question. <laughs> <laughs> and we want to win football matches. There's nothing to tame. You know, some sort of animal. You know what I mean? Um, you obviously don't know Martin as well as you think you do. He makes me look like Mother Teresa. You know, he's, um, I don't know, and we want to win football matches. We've had a lovely few days. The hotel's been lovely. The food's been excellent. Training ground is lovely. No potholes. Uh, we've had footballs. It's been great. Bibs, everything. It's been major progress. And we want to win football matches. Let's get to Jonathan Wilson on Arsenal's win in the Community Shield. Jonathan, also, their rather excitable celebrations afterwards. I mean, the players were... Uh, pretty happy with themselves, which is fair enough, I guess, but it is a f- fairly minor competition. Could this be the start of maybe quite a happy addiction that these players might actually become addicted to winning trophies for Arsene Wenger? 
Well, that was always Brian Clough's theory, wasn't it? That um, when he was at Forest, they won the Anglo-Scottish Cup in 1976. And he said that uh, although he went into that tournament not really caring about it, that got them used to winning. It got them used to the taste of champagne, to, to use his phrase. And of course, they then went on to um, to win the league in the European Cup twice in the next next four years. So, I don't know. I, th- I think the, the Community Shield is one of those things, if you win it... You, you make the most of it. You, you try and build momentum from it. You you suggest that this is a, a great thing. If it goes wrong for you, you say, well, who cares? It doesn't matter. We had, as City did yesterday, six players missing and we made a lot of substitutions. So uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't read too much into it. But at the same time, if you go into it wanting to win it and you win it, that's obviously a good thing. Yeah, I mean, the Arsenal players look delighted. But looking around Wembley, you could see, OK, it's a big stadium. Um, the crowd wasn't quite big enough to fill it. English crowds may be a bit tired of paying big prices to, to look at what they understand to be a friendly match. And now you can hear even FA officials banding about the idea of taking this match and turning it into a sort of a touring uh, thing that will go around the world. Um, what do you make of that idea? Is it, is it a good one or is it just like, when is English football just going to stop trying to suck up to the rest of the world? <laughs> um I'm sort of ambivalent to it. I mean, okay, Wembley wasn't full, but it's still 71,000 there. And my suspicion is that the the community shield means less in tournament years. So I think people maybe are still a little bit jaded after the World Cup that there's a sense of, oh, God, is this starting again? Whereas when you don't have a World Cup or European Championship, everybody's desperate for football to start again. So so maybe that sort of changes the tone slightly. Um, I I, I guess the worrying thing for the FA or, or the reason why they might be looking to change the format or, or you know, change the location, is if you only get 71,000 and one of the teams is Arsenal, who you know, London-based, and also you know, they, they charge a lot for, for season tickets for, for regular league games. They have a wealthy fan base. If they can't sell out, then maybe there is a problem. I, I, this idea of um, taking it abroad, I, I guess for marketing reasons it, it is good, but... Yeah, you know, the, the expansionism of the Premier League always makes me slightly uncomfortable. That um, I, I, I guess the ship sailed, and it, 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 it's it's too late to get it back. But uh, I, I mean, it depends where you take it to. But I think it'd be much more valuable to to football as a sort of global thing if we had twenty or thirty thriving leagues around the world, rather than as we have now, sort of three or four, and then the rest all appear to feed into those three or four. I suppose it would go to America, really, wouldn't it? And it seems like a lot of the preseason tours go these days. But just on Man City, who are maybe a symbol of that expansionism, but haven't expanded their own squad too much this summer necessarily. Willie Caballero and goals, though, could be... The way um, Pellegrini's talked about him pre-season, he's put him in goals for the Community Shield, does he see him as a live uh, threat, a live alternative to Joe Hart? I think he does, and I think that's actually one of the slightly surprising trends this summer, is that they're not the only team who suddenly have two really good goalkeepers. I mean, you look at Arsenal, and I guess Jensen is is the first choice, but you know, Ospina's a very, very good goalkeeper. And I think, actually, after Buffon, he had the best save-the-shots ratio of anybody in Europe last season. So Ospina's not going to sit there and keep quiet. He's going to be wanting to to, to play for you know, for the first team. At, at Chelsea, you've got Courtois and Czech. So, I don't know, maybe there's something in the top clubs that now they think, well, we've got to have two really good goalkeepers. Now, whether... They do what Real Madrid did last season and use one in the league and one in the in the Champions League. Whether they, they just think the competition's good and it, it keeps them the number one at yeah, the top of his game. Um I, I you know, I don't think it's a bad thing for Joe Hart if he's if he's got competition, as long as he does actually get games. I mean it is a bad thing if he ends up yeah, from his point from the point of view of his career, from the point of view of England, if he ends up sitting there watching uh, Caballero 
playing. But if it actually just makes him knuckle down a bit more and, and do extra training or whatever it is that he needs to do to focus, then, then maybe that is a positive. I mean, the City do have this cap on their transfer spending, which means that they haven't done the usual thing and beefed up their squad a lot, although they're apparently going to sign Mangala as well. But, you know, um, a defender uh, coming in doesn't necessarily make that much difference to the way the team play. I mean, it reminds me a little bit of the 2012 close season, which obviously then put Roberto Roberto Mancini, not Martinez, into a rage, which pretty much didn't abate until he left the club. Um, where City, in his opinion, wasted the chance to to build on their success, and you know Manchester United went on to win the, the the City kind of stagnated that season. I mean, do you think there's a risk of the same thing happening? I think there is a risk, and I, th- I think those fears probably increased with the performance. It was such a sort of lethargic, complacent performance. I mean, there's two or three times in the first half, the second goal most notably, when players City players just didn't seem to be, be tracking back that. They, they were dispossessed in, in the Arsenal half. Arsenal broke, and there was a sort of no great urgency to, to get back. Whereas you know, Ramsey's run to, to, to score the, the, the second goal, yeah, he was absolutely busting a gut, making a 40, 50 yard break into the box as City players watched him. So I think that's a concern. I wouldn't get, oh, yeah, it's a concern, but there's no reason to panic. You know, they, they still they brought in Fernando, they, they look like they're going to bring in Mangala, they brought in another goalkeeper. That's still three pretty major signings. Um, you look at the front four, I don't think there's any real reason to, to fiddle with that, if, assuming Aguero gets his fitness back. Um, I think you'd start to worry if, if they sold Aguero, but that now seems to be off the off the agenda. So a little bit of tinkering, a little bit of polishing to the squad, I, I think, is, is probably what that team needed. But I, I, I think the, the, there is a concern there that the, the loss of appetite they solved in 2012... You know, might be might be repeating. It's something to guard against. Arsene Wenger has been criticised repeatedly over the years for buying roughly the same type of player over and over again in terms of uh, the the type of attacking guys that he goes for. And Alexis Sanchez maybe in build looks something similar and, and in terms of his philosophy. But based, basing every uh, bit of our opinion on the 90 minutes we saw or the game against Man City, does Sanchez bring anything different to a lot of the other guys in the team? Um... I think, well, yes, he does, but I, I think there's actually a wider issue there. I mean, what, what he brings to the extra is I think he, he is more direct, he is quicker. And I think Arsenal really struggled last season once Theo Walcott had been injured, that they, they lacked that directness and that pace. And that, in turn, re- reduced the effectiveness of Mesut Ersel, that he's a player who needs players running quickly beyond him so, so he can play those three balls. So, so, yes, he gives them that. He also, because he, he can play actually as a forward, whether that's centrally or on the right or in that line behind the forwards, he gives them more options. I think with, with Joel Campbell coming back in the squad uh, after his three years out on loan, with Sonogo looking a much, much more complete and much better player now than than he did sort of January this year, uh, that, that reduces the pressure on Olivier Giroud. So I think the front end of the pitch is, is looking much healthier for Arsenal. I, but you know, the, the concern for them is not a game like... Uh, the Community Shield. It's you think of the three away games they played against the other three members of the top four, so against Liverpool, against City, and against Chelsea. When they 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 conceded what a total of seventeen goals in those three matches. Now that yeah, that on Sunday wasn't City playing at that level of intensity. So we still don't know if Arsenal can deal with that, and and that is a big problem. 
Now, there's there's a piece, I think it was Amy Lawrence wrote a piece in The Guardian talking about this, and she's comparing the situation at the end of last season to the situation in, in 97, so the end of, of, of Arsenal's first, of Arsene Wenger's first season at Arsenal, uh, although it wasn't a, a complete season, when they, they'd finished, I think, third that season. They had a very good record against the, the, the middle of the table and the bottom of the table, but really struggled against the teams who finished above them, who were Manchester United and Newcastle that year. And that summer, they, they brought in Overmars, and you can see a a comparison between Overmars and Sanchez, both quick, tricky players um, yeah, with, with, a, with a clear sort of star quality. But they also brought in Emmanuel Petit. Now, there's no Petit equivalent this year. And I think that is actually quite a significant comparison that Wenger is still pursuing the front end of the team and he's still not bringing in the destroyer at the back of the midfield, which is the area where they, they, they really were, were lacking in those three games last season. Yeah, I mean, they, they actually spoke about those games. It's clearly something they've been talking about because you could see the players when they were interviewed. Ramsey certainly mentioned uh, those three away matches, uh, that being the area that Arsenal have to improve. But what was notable about it, I think, was this bullying confidence from the Arsenal players who none of them, when they were asked, you know, can you win the league, none of them uh, said, oh, well, you know, there's a lot of good teams. I mean, Wenger said that, but the players all said yes. Even Callum Chambers, who'd been there for like five seconds, said, yeah, we can win the league. Um, so, I mean, you think that confidence is misplaced? Well, not necessarily. I mean, I think it's 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 good to have that uh, that self belief, and, and I think it's a snowball effect from winning the the FA Cup and, and ending the the nine year trophy drought last May. I think that momentum is something that's important to preserve. So, yeah, I think it's a good thing that the players talk about their own chances, but it seems to me there's still a qualitative difference between Chelsea and City. And then you know, the danger for Arsenal, as, as it has been for three or four years, is that you know, they, they, they might put in a great surge and they, they, they might avoid injuries this season. And, and um, you know, maybe the, the, um, the guy who worked with Germany that they've brought in can, can help alleviate some of those injury problems that they've suffered. Um, but uh, you know, they're in that group of four teams challenging for third and fourth, really. And although they keep on finishing in the top four, sooner or later, Tottenham are going to get their act together. Uh, United are going to be stronger this season. Liverpool might not be as much weaker than last season as Arsenal hope they are. So there's a the realistic possibility, I think, that without playing particularly badly, they could finish fifth. OK, Jonathan, great stuff. Thank you. Cheers, thanks. Who's this team doctor, this German team doctor that Jonathan mentions? That's Shad Forsyth. Uh, he's American. Uh, he, he was uh, brought in by... Jurgen Klinsmann, so, you know, 10 years ago nearly, Mm -hmm. and to take over the training of the German national team, had been working for the German FA effectively for the last 10 years, uh, up to the end of the World Cup when he decided, well, (laughs) you know, the mountain has climbed. Uh, I'll now go to Arsenal and earn even more money than before. (laughs) Uh, And, yeah, credited with a lot of innovations which have helped them. I mean, they they were clearly the fittest team in the World Cup, and this was despite playing most of their matches in uh, in fairly sweltering conditions in the early part of the tournament. Um, part of that, I think, has to do with the fact that it was, <laughs> I think, had a lot to do with Pep Guardiola winning the league at the end of March. And from then on, a lot of the German players were able to take the foot off the pedal a little bit and, and get themselves in shape for the World Cup. But certainly, he comes very highly recommended. And it's an area that Arsenal have had big problems with. I mean, if you just think back to last season, and Arsenal... Supporters will still say, well, if Ram- I mean, OK, so we did lose heavily in a few big games. But if Aaron Ramsey had not been injured, 
then would we have would we have struggled so badly? So the idea, I guess, will be to ensure this time that Aaron Ramsey doesn't get injured, and then we'll see. Four years ago, Johan Cruyff practically disowned the Dutch national team, and Bert van Marwijk's men booted all before them. I'm talking bodies as opposed to just footballs on the way to a World Cup final. But Louis van Gaal's performance this time around and his impact so far at Man United have highlighted the. I guess the impact that such a small country has had on the way the sport is thought about around Europe. Henk Tenkari group, steeped in that tradition. He's managed Ajax, coached at Chelsea and Barcelona, among others, and joins us on the show now. I'm delighted to say, Henk, good to have you on. Thanks for talking to us. You're welcome. Well, really, you wanted to get a sense of um, your own football philosophy, but Dutch football philosophy in general, because Holland had such a great World Cup. Uh, even Germany now uh, have, have said that they have looked at the Dutch way over the years. And of course, before that, Spain very much model themselves on a, on a Dutch system. What is it about a very small country such as yours, do you think, that has created this, uh, this philosophy that's permeated world football? I think it has everything to do with a, a fantastic generation we had in 1974, uh, led by Johan Cruyff. And uh, I think uh, they, they affected uh, Dutch football a lot, that group of people, that group of players. The style of playing... And it is uh, further uh, yeah, modelized. And being a small country and uh, loving football a lot and trying to have something to say. As you know, the Dutch are called the Chinese of Europe. And uh, we're always trying to, to invent something, something new. This is what happened with Dutch football in general. Was that something that you specifically, when you were playing, I mean, we always hear that Dutch players think about things a little bit more than, say, it's very broad to say this, but more than in English football, there's more debate among players about tactics and that sort of thing. Was that the case when you were playing? Yeah, absolutely. And, and um, furthermore, we, we were all raised in a, in a, in a system, a 4-3-3, in, a, in an offensive system, where we had to learn to use the spaces a lot. So the positioning game became a very important uh, part of, of Dutch football and as a kid you are already raised in this system and the 4-3-3 the, the three, three system uh, you can easily uh, change into 4-4-2 four, four, or yeah 3-4-3 three, three, or something like this because it, it doesn't really uh, make a lot of difference with the positioning in the field and and when we lose the ball, it's very easy to go to four five one in in a defensive mode. So there's a lot of possibilities when you are racing four three three, and this is what happened uh, in in Holland years ago. I often wondered, Hank, when you hear about Dutch players arguing with each other over tactics, and apparently this is the culture to to argue and to say, well, you should have done this, and I was doing this. Um, if that was to happen in English or Irish dressing room, there would just be fights every day. How is it that Dutch players don't end up brawling in the, in the dressing room in these arguments? Yeah. Also, this is, I think, uh, a philosophy which we have learned uh, over the years. As a young player, you are uh, taught to, uh, to play from your position and do uh, all the, the necessary things within the position. So if you fail to do what you have to do, there will be somebody in your back saying, hey, you uh, lost your man or you weren't well positioned, uh, make sure that the next time you are uh, well positioned. But this, you, you should not see it as arguing because a lot of people think it's arguing, but it's more like coaching each other and helping each other 
to uh, to perform well. Is that all about performing well and getting the result, or do you place a lot of value yourself, Hank, on football as entertainment? Do you feel you know forty, fifty, sixty thousand people, eighty thousand people have paid in to see my team play, so we have to actually give these guys a show? I think this is this is the most important philosophy of Dutch football that we play for the crowd, and and we are like performers. Like if you go to a to a movie, you want to see a good movie. Or to a theater, you want to see good actors, and you want to see a nice play. And if the play is not good, you you will leave uh, during half time. And this is also the philosophy in football. We have to present something to the public in order that the public will come to the games. And being a small country and losing all our young good players nowadays on a very early age to the foreign uh, leagues because. Uh, Money-wise, they they pay a lot of uh, a lot more money. Um, this is uh, an issue which is very important because the stadiums are still very full, and and everybody is uh, attracting a lot of people. So Dutch football is alive, but the quality of Dutch football is 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 running backwards if you compare it to the other European leagues, the big leagues, because we lose all our good players on a very early age to. Uh, to the, the richer clubs in, in other countries. The attitude, Hank, that you expressed there to entertainment is completely different. It's the opposite attitude from what um, Giovanni Trapattoni, who was the manager of the Republic of Ireland for a few years recently, obviously uh, a big man of Italian football, um, would, would frequently say this. I mean, nearly every press conference he would say, if you want entertainment, go to the opera. If you want a show, go to the theatre. This is football, it's about the result, it's not about the show. What would you say to that? Yeah, my opinion, but I'm raised the Dutch way. My my opinion is is that you can you cannot ignore the public. This is what this is what you play for. So this is not my philosophy, but him being Italian, I can understand what he said, of course, because the Italians are raised in a different way. It's a different culture where it's all about winning, and in Holland it's it's also about winning, but winning in in an entertaining way. We rather win with 4-3 than with 1-0. And in England also, it's very, or in Britain, it's very important. People speak about a clean sheet. We don't care about a clean sheet as long as we win the game in an entertaining way. So if we win 4-3, preferably than 1-0. You spent a bit of time in Italy yourself, I think, Hank. You, you... No, no, I was in Spain. I wasn't in Italy. Well, I didn't work in Italy. Did you, did you studied there, though, did you not? When, um, did you not yeah, go yeah. To... So yeah, what... Milan. Yeah, but Milan is was a different thing, but because Milan was playing in a, in an entirely different philosophy, M- Milan didn't play like the the Italian teams did. Mil- uh, the initial Mil- Milan of, of of Saki and and Capello later on who took it over was entirely different. It wasn't Italian football. It was it was based also on on the Dutch school because. The, the the key players in that team were uh, among, of course, Baresi, uh, who was a very important player in Maldini, but Gullit Kraaf and Van Gullit uh, Rijkaard and Van Basten, they were very important in that team. Essentially, really, that was a, a Dutch influence in that side. Maybe made it a little bit different, is what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. And and the the reason I went uh, for my study to uh, to Milan was. Uh, they introduced the pressing system with uh, with the diagonal lines, 
and I wanted to see uh, how this was how this was coached, how this was trained. And uh, Saki started with uh, with players uh, being connected uh, with ropes to each other, so that the difference between the two players when they were uh, playing the pressure was not more than like uh, ten meters or, or seven meters. And this is this. I was cu- curious about that, and I went to went to see this. Did you learn much from Capella, who seems, I have to say, like a very typically Italian manager? No, no, Capello, uh, Capello in, in Milan was a different coach than Capello abroad. Capello in, in Milan uh, took over from, from Ariko Saki and, of course, did a great job by winning a lot of titles, but did not really brought something specifically new to the team. Saki was the one who, who brought something new to Italian football, to, to Milan in, in specific. And, and Capello took over and added, of course, his style as well to the team. But it wasn't like revolutionary. Even though Capello is a, is a, fanta- is a fantastic manager. Don't get me wrong, it's a fantastic manager. But he, he was not the one who did the revolutionary thing with, with the Milan team the way Saki did it. We're very much making the assumption here, Hank, that uh, as we speak, that management is vital to how a team goes. I mean, there are plenty of arguments in recent years that it's really all about how much money a club has to spend and the level of players that they have and that the manager just facilitates that. I don't know how how you found, say, for example, the Barcelona team you worked at with Ronaldinho, you know, Frank Rijkaard managing and uh, Ronaldinho playing and a young Leo Messi. Uh, could, is it fair to say anybody could have managed those guys? No, of course not. What what is it that the management team brought to that setup? Uh, I think it's 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 very important that uh, the the playing philosophy which which we had and where we started with uh, you have to transform that to your players. Uh, they all come from a different culture. So what you have to do is is to uh, to find a way to fit in all the cultures in one team and and let them think uh, simultaneously in in instead of. Uh, Playing from their own philosophy, where they grew up uh, with the Brazilian style is, of course, you know, like uh, Ronaldinho. You can never make a real team player from Ronaldinho because he is the individual player with with the skills and who has something extraordinary. But still, uh, Ronaldinho also has a defensive uh, job to do, and we had to make him aware of this. Uh, he wanted to play in a number 10 position and we gave him the opportunity to do to to do so but we also saw very quickly that with him in that position uh, we were lacking defensive qualities in midfield so we were overpowered in midfield and that's that's why we we played him on the left hand side where he was uh, less dangerous for us in 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 the defense because football nowadays is, is, is a game of uh, a lot of running, uh, more running than, than it used to be. Uh, so the athletic ability of the players is very important. And also in this case, uh, we, had, we had to uh, uh, yeah, uh, help him to become a European player. And, and this is what happened to a lot of players, of course. Uh, we had Marquez and we had some more Brazilians. And a Brazilian player is more uh, 
personal orientated. But the the quality of the Barcelona team was uh, especially that that it was it was a team, and this is a hell of a job. Don't get me wrong, because you have to work with a lot of characters, and and the characters itself were all stars where they came from, and and we had to try to transform a personal stardom into team stardom, so that the team was a star, not the individual players. And of course, within within the team. Uh, you will have uh, players who uh, who play an important an important role, but this is what you have to manage in a good way. That there are workers and there are like uh, stylists, creative uh, minds who do something extra. But on the other hand, there's also a group of players who, who, who have to control this. Hey, what you're saying reminds me of uh, a couple of years before you were at Barcelona. Rivaldo was a star player. And the manager was Louis van Gaal. And Rivaldo, I think, like Ronaldinho, wanted to play in the middle. Uh, and van Gaal said, no, no, you can only play in the wing. And what happened there was a big fight between Rivaldo and van Gaal. And eventually van Gaal had to leave the club. So when you and Rijkaard were handling Ronaldinho, who was the best player in the world at that time, yeah. how did you manage to persuade him? You know, you're going to have to play on the left and, uh, and avoid serious I conflict think, I think I, th I think we were lucky uh, with, with Ronaldinho Ronaldinho we, we bought him from Paris Saint-Germain where he was not playing Luis Fernandez was the manager over there and uh, and Ronaldinho didn't play that much in, in Paris Saint-Germain and wasn't this big of a player when he went to Barcelona and when he became best player of the world uh, I think he realized and and uh, I spoke a lot with him, of course, about this, that becoming the number one player in the world is one thing. And for a player for, uh, with a, uh, for a player with his qualities, not even so hard. But staying on this position uh, costs a lot of more effort. And, uh, and we had a very good contact with him. And, and he believed in the philosophy. And, and he could excel in, in our team. And he was happy with that. See, Ronaldinho is a fantastic character, very nice guy. And I cannot speak about Rivaldo because I don't know him. You can speak about Leo Messi, of course, who was there at that at that time. Um, I mean, he's, he's such a very different player now. He's gone through the stage where he's become the most incredible footballer in the world, maybe, and, and very dynamic. Then at the World Cup, we saw uh, this different figure who I don't know if you buy into the theory that he was fatigued and that he had to save his energy what do you think of Leo Messi now in 2014 uh, I still think uh, it's an amazing player and, and, and the best in the world uh, what I did what I did notice uh, is a change but I noticed the same change with Ronaldinho and, and probably uh, it, it is hard to, to play on this high level for such a long time because people expect so much of those players. Besides that, they're uh, running around the world, uh, shooting commercials and, and playing for their countries. And they have to break time barriers. Uh, then they have to come back and play for their team again. You know, it's, there are no machines. And, and there comes a moment in time that the body says, no, stop. And this is what I think is what's happening to, uh, besides the psychological pressure, uh, this is what's happening to uh, to big players like that. And there comes a moment in time because how many years Leo Messi and, and at the top? How many years Ronaldinho was at the top? I think Ronaldinho was 
four or five years uh, amongst the best players in the world and maybe three or four years the best player in the world. This costs a lot of effort, more more than uh, the outside world uh, imagines. And do you think, Hank, that that's a temporary thing, uh, something that can be cured with rest? I mean, if he was to have a break from football, or is it simply, uh, well, that's just the way it is now? I think it's just the way it is, because the club pays a lot of, of money and, and for, for players like this. Uh, the, 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 the people in the supporters of, of the various clubs, they want to see their best players play always. Of course, this is why why you buy a season ticket to see the best players, and uh, so it's 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 very difficult. Besides that, the player have have his own personal interests in uh, making money. Uh, he they sign contracts for for Nike, for Coca Cola, Pepsi Cola, whatever, and uh, and they have to uh, fulfill their commitment to to those as well. So it's it's very difficult. It's very difficult for those players and and uh, to remain for such a long time this high level in every game. Hank, you've spent time, of course, in England as well at Chelsea. Uh, you you would have been there with Brendan Rodgers. Yeah, yeah, I was there with Brendan. What did you think of him at the time? Did you did you see that this Hell guy was going to make it? Yeah. No, no, yeah, right, right. Then I was talking. To, I had the most contact with with with, with Brendan, I think, and. And as you ask about the Dutch philosophy of football, he, he asked about that, and, and, and we spoke a lot about football. Ben was a good guy, and is a good guy, and a fantastic manager, as he's demonstrating this. I'm very pleased for him, because his career didn't start up really well, I think. It didn't? No, but uh, uh, thank God uh, that people still believe in him, because... Uh, he knows a lot about football. He's a very hard-working guy. Yeah. Sorry, when you talk about players um, not being machines and the demands that are placed on players and the not being able to have a break, are coaches any different? I saw that Louis van Gaal went from Holland to, to Manchester. He flew back from Brazil and pretty I, much... I don't need a holiday. <laughs> he took over Manchester United like five minutes later and flew to America on this tour. He must be pretty tired at this stage. Probably he, he is, but his philosophy is uh, is that uh, the mind is stronger than the body. This is his philosophy, and uh, and I think uh, this is what he what he did. Like okay, of course he was tired after the World Cup with a lot of pressure and, and the Dutch press not always being so nice for him. But uh, uh, he, he's a strong he's a strong character, and a strong personality. I thought. And, and of course, uh, he's working with his staff, and uh, he believes in his staff, and, and the staff can help him. And there will be moments for him to uh, to get, uh, yeah, a kind of a rest. I thought uh, that he represented Dutch football quite well in the World Cup. I mean, the team played well, um, and he was he was inventive, he was creative. But you, you mentioned the press maybe were that nice about him. Why was it a controversial thing? to change the formation as he did. I mean, he seems to have, have rethought his own system in the time that he was out of the game. It was three at the back with Holland, and now it's, it seems like it's going to be the same with Manchester United. But that seemed to be a controversial thing in Holland. Yeah, because it's a defensive system. And, and we want to be in demand in Holland. Uh, and in demand, I mean that uh, we will like to have the in an initiative 
as, as much as possible during a game. And with the system he played with, uh, with the Dutch national team, uh, you give away the initiative to the opponent. And on the other hand, you can say, uh, yeah, he used the qualities of his players uh, in the best possible way. Because this is what it's about. I think there's a difference between playing in a competition, which is over 34 games, or playing in a knockout competition. And in a knockout competition, it's all about winning. And in a, in a regular competition, it's about good football and winning. Yeah, well, we'll see if he can do both of those at Manchester United. But Henk Tenkati, it's been great talking to you. Thanks so much for, for chatting to us today. Okay, you're welcome. You can see the level of expectancy. Coach, this is the game you wanted a victory, but it didn't happen. What happened? Oh, Pepe's such an idiot. A game that they've been looking forward to for a long time. Where do you where do you think you got it all wrong today? And then Pepe just ruins it for everyone. Thanks a lot, Pepe. You can see the level of expectancy. He <laughs> was fucking dreaded. Oh, yeah. We're not out here. Oh, we're not, are we? Yeah. Oh. Well, I apologise for that, but obviously, that was it. They didn't exactly do it. All right. Really interesting stuff there from Hank Tenkati, who doesn't buy into the soccernomic school of thought, Ken, which is where I was basing a lot of my, my theory there about managers not necessarily mattering a huge amount. Simon Cooper and Stefan Schmansky put that one out there originally? Well, the, what they did put out in the original edition of the book was that uh, managers don't really make a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, but they they did mention a sort of proviso, which I think they've made more of in more recent iterations, which is that some managers do make a difference. Some managers make a difference, out, outperform what you would expect them to achieve given the wages, essentially, at their disposal, because the wages they reckon are the, are the big determining amount. They determine, you know, 80, 85% of what happens. But a really great manager, someone like a um, uh, Alex Ferguson, or I think in I think their analysis concluded that, in fact, Paul Sturrock was, uh, was a great manager, at least by this metric, in terms of being able to get results which you wouldn't have expected him to be able to get, given the budget that his team had. But they have... I think I don't know if I, I don't know if I would say that they've retreated a little bit from the stridency of their original point, but they did definitely. Because I think because the reaction of a lot of people, me and you included, on when we first heard that was <laughs> managed to make a difference. And we did talk to Simon Cooper about that yeah, at the time. It's you know, and the the idea being that, I mean, I, I suppose what they were doing was, it's a counter point to the maybe there is definitely too much emphasis there's a cult on, managers. on the managers and yeah and maybe in English football in particular there's a there's a cult of the manager but even we end up talking about the managers more than the players because they're the ones who do the interviews <laughs> they're the ones who are, who are saying all this stuff and they give us the stuff to talk about so the, the way the coverage is structured the managers do assume disproportionate importance and they were maybe trying to correct that a bit but yeah I do I do think it's the case that some managers although they would argue most managers are just um you know, stuffed shirts. There was no need for Hank to be so mean to me, though, was there? Pretty well, put the boot down there. You know, I mean, I think you were you were you were essentially trying to trying Tell to him, discredit his, his life's profession. Work. Yeah, sure, you won the two league titles and the Champions League playing football that you know lit up a continent. 
But anyone could have done that. <laughs> uh, no, of course not. Indeed. I did ask him as opposed to tell him that anyone could have done that, didn't I? I hope I had a question mark at the end of, the end of my sentence. You would say, would you not? <laughs> I put it to you, uh, Mr. Tenkate. All right, that's pretty much it from this show. But we have got uh, show number one of the week already ready for you. We talked a lot of Rory, quite a bit of GA Championship action, and a little bit about the GA Falcon. Oh, and also uh, Ken Early's Women's World Cup Crystal Ball, which is good news. Ken Early's World Cup Crystal, Crystal Ball. Good news if you're a part of the Irish setup there. I'm going to let you in on that. Things are things are looking good for the game against England on Wednesday. Thanks very much for listening. Oh, here we go. Robbie's going to see us out here. <laughs> Young footballers everywhere earn enough money and earn enough fame that you too can move to LA and get involved in this kind of stuff towards the end of your career. Thanks again. Thank you. Owen. Thanks very much for listening. And we'll chat to you soon. Take care. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.